It, it must be getting close to winter time, right? Because uh, here it comes. If you remember our last lesson, uh, we noted that Second Chronicles takes us from a history perspective to the time when the Jews who had been in Babylonian captivity returned to their homeland in Judah. Now, Israel, the northern kingdom, had fallen in 721 B.C. Judah lasted about 135 years longer than Israel lasted. And uh, sadly, they had not benefited whatsoever from the tragedy in the north. Uh, there, there were some shorter periods of faithfulness to God, but they always reverted to the times when they would do wrong. And, and, and God sent prophets to try to help them and to uh, encourage them and, and, and even threaten them to, to get right. And, and ultimately, the patience of God and incidentally, we often talk about the patience. God is long-suffering. We know that. How thankful we are for that. But nobody should think that the patience of God means that God will never do anything. See, some people mistakenly think, oh, God would never punish anybody because he's patient. No, no. God is patient. Gives us plenty of opportunities. But there comes a time when God says, I'm not taking this anymore. And that was the case with Judah, and so Judah would have to go into captivity just like Israel. Now, Jeremiah had foretold that, that captivity. Jeremiah 25, verse 12, he specified that it would last 70 years. We're not going to go back to talk about why 70 years, but there was a reason for 70 years. And, and, and so that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, Babylon had overcome the Syrians. They were now the dominant power. And Nebuchadnezzar came against uh, Judah in 606, around 606, 607 B.C. And for the first time carried away into captivity some Jews. 586, I mean 596 or 97, comes back again and his armies carry away more Jews to Babylon. And finally in 586, he is tired, just like God was tired, of fooling with these stubborn, rebellious Jews. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple and takes that final group into captivity. Now, today, our, our brief survey of Ezra and Nehemiah is going to take us to the primary source of information that we have about the period of time that follows the captivity. In other words, from the time of the Jews' release until basically the end of the Old Testament. That is, historically, the end of the Old Testament. I mentioned last week, but let me reiterate again. When we finish today, we will have covered 16 books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. 16 books. 23 books still to go, 
And yet all 23 of those books can be folded into the time period that ends with Nehemiah. In fact, I'll show you one uh, kind of interesting example of that in just a few minutes. So, so historically, and again, first-time Bible readers sometimes struggle over this. They think that the Bible, the Old Testament, is a book that goes from the beginning to the end consecutively and or chronologically. It doesn't. We're going to the end of Nehemiah. That's the end of Old Testament history, about 430 B.C. And then for about 400 years, as we've talked about before, there is silence from God. He does not speak through prophets. Uh, there are no writings that are legitimate writings that are considered inspired by God. And it is not until the New Testament begins that we have any actual uh, statements about a, a new era, a new time. And it's a, those weren't written at the birth of Christ. Those were written after Christ had died. Okay. Now, th there are some really interesting events that took place during this hundred-year period, and that's what it covers, about a hundred years. Uh, significant not only to God's plan, but also to Jewish history. Um, here's one thing that... that, that that is interesting. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, if you look at Ezra 6, Ezra 6, I, I want you to note this. The book of Esther, which we study next week, the book of Esther takes place historically between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. Let me show you how we know that. Chapter 6, uh, verse 1 then King Darius issued a decree and so on. King Darius, Persian king. Look at the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, and so on. So what you have is Darius in chapter 6, Ezra in chapter 7. I mean, Artaxerxes chapter 7. Well, what's, what's significant about that? What's significant about that is in between those two kings was a king named Xerxes, also called Ahasuerus, in the book of Esther, chapter 1. The events of Esther take place during the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, that, that great king who, whose dominion was very widespread. Incidentally, Janice um, and I were talking about this a little bit this morning, uh, in Esther 1, and we'll talk about this next week maybe, there is mention of the reign and how widespread Xerxes or Ahasuerus empire was. And the name India is mentioned. And very quickly after I made my first trip to India, I was shown that India was in the Bible. <laughs> but America isn't. The United States of America isn't in the Bible, but India is in the Bible. They wanted me to be sure I knew that. So, so India is a very old country, at least having that name uh, 500 years before Christ came, uh, as opposed to our country being relatively new. At least we think it's relatively new. Let's talk a little bit about the books and the men whose names are on these books. Now, I, I think some of you would know this. Maybe some of you don't know it. Preachers. Preachers. 
hate to admit mistakes. We probably hate it more than other people hate to admit mistakes. I'm going to admit one, okay, though I hate to do it. In your, on your outline, and this is my mistake, please note that, not the secretary's mistake. Where it says about Ezra and Nehemiah, it says these two books were considered one until 1448 A.D. I considered that, when I wrote it, a reputable date. It is not. And, and the reason it is not is that the first time, evidently, these two books were separated. They originally were considered one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, just like we're studying today. But the first time they were officially separated was in what was called a Bomberg Bible. After a man named Bomberg. And he was not born until 1483 or so. So he couldn't have published it in 1448, obviously. The, the real date is supposed to be 1517, at least that's what we think. Now, there's some confusion about the Bomberg Bible because Bomberg was the first man to print the Bible and to print a number of rabbinic, Jewish rabbinic teachings. Uh, got into a lot of trouble because of that. The Catholic Church didn't like the fact that he was printing Jewish material. And, and anyway, later he was able to get over some of that. But I just wanted you to note that the date is not 1448. I think the correct date would be 1517. And if you want to look up Bomberg, you can. Um, Daniel is his first name, Daniel Bomberg. Kind of an interesting fellow. Um, now, from... From time to time, from that time until now, these two books have been listed separately, Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and, but what I want you to keep in mind is this. We've talked about First and Second Samuel being one, First and Second Kings being one, First and Second Chronicles being one, and now Ezra and Nehemiah being one. What, what we need to understand is that inclusion or separation or putting together or taking apart books has nothing to do with the content of the books. Nothing has been changed about what was written in the books, only the way of dividing them. And incidentally, that's generally for our benefit. Uh, you know or should know that human beings arrange the Bible in chapters and in verses. That, that wasn't inspired. And, and that's why sometimes we have to be careful when we chop off a statement at one verse and start a statement at another verse thinking, well, they surely have to be separate because they're different verses. Uh, those are human helps, and they do help us. Let's admit that. All conservative scholars, biblical scholars, consider each of these books to be written by the man's name who is, a, is, is the principal of the book. In other words, Ezra wrote Ezra, Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah. Um, and, and one of the reasons that we have to agree with that is that both of those books have Ezra in Ezra, Nehemiah in Nehemiah, speaking in the first person, I. So that's the writer, I. <laughs> and they relate to those particular men. Now, just as there had been three removals from the land of Judah, 
there were also three returns to Judah. The first of these was in 536 B.C., and that would correspond with the 70 years that uh, was prophesied. It was led by a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Now, you, you will note, if you're reading in Ezra, and I hope you have read it or will read it sometime, if you're reading in Ezra, you'll see another name that might confuse you because it's Sheshbazar. Sheshbazar. For instance, look in chapter 1 of Ezra, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Judah. And then in chapter 5 and verse 14, and I don't have to read all of that, toward the end, and these, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. He had made governor. And the reason that we think that that could possibly be the same Zerubbabel is that what fits him fits Zerubbabel. And what that could mean is, as in other cases, the same man is sometimes referred to in two different ways by two different names. That is not uncommon biblically. Uh, what, what happened when the Jews came back in 536 was that they began to rebuild the, t- the, uh, the, the temple. That, that, was their, uh, that was their goal. And they didn't get very far into it when they got discouraged and they stopped. And, and basically the work halted for about 16 years before the people were encouraged to get back to doing what they should have been doing all along. That was get the temple finished. And, and so about four years after that, they were able to complete the temple. They had done a few things like creating an altar for sacrifice and observing some things, but, but, but the work of the temple had stopped. Um, now, The second group of Jews to come home from Babylon did not happen until Ezra brought a group in 458 B.C. I mean, yeah, 458. Now, notice the difference. 536 all the way down to 458. Remember, you have to go backwards, not not the way we normally do it, in in this side of A.D. and B.C. And so Ezra brought a group some 60 or more years later uh, back home. I I don't know why there was that long interval. Uh, Not the same king who's sending, but I don't know why there was that long interval, but there was. And and the Jews finally came home with Ezra. Ezra brought a larger group and, and did some really important things that involved spiritual revival. And that was much needed by this time. Uh, you, you know, all of the fervor and the, the the passion to get things done that had started with Zerubbabel bringing that group back had evidently sort of died. It had become doing things out of tradition and so on. And so the people need to be stirred up, and they were. Now, the third group, came just a short while later in 445 B.C., 
and Nehemiah brought that group. Uh, the, the walls which of Jerusalem, which were broken down uh, and in a pitiful condition, were rebuilt. And, and that's one of the principal stories that's involved in the book of Nehemiah. There are other things that are important, too. But the rebuilding of the walls. Now, th those two principal men, we, we don't really get a lot of information concerning Zerubbabel. But we do get a lot of information about Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and those two men both exhibited excellent leadership skills. If we have any time <clears throat> before our class ends, I want to mention some in the life of Nehemiah. Now, <clears throat> they had different roles to, to carry out, but they were both successful. I'm going to get back to that a little bit later after I take a drink. <clears throat> what are some of the major themes <coughs> of Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, some are seen in the book and some are seen because of things that happened during that period. And the first of them is, is God's power. I think a lot of times when people think of God's power, they think only in terms of that which is observable physically. In other words, the parting of the Red Sea, bringing water from a rock, things like that that are notable eyewitness miracles. Actually, these two books, I think, show how God can work in the lives of people and bring about his will in, in unseen ways. In other words, not so visible. Okay, why is that true? Well, Ezra, the book of Ezra begins by telling what the end of Second Chronicles told. And that is that this king, Cyrus, made a decree allowing Jews who wanted to return to Jerusalem to do so. And he even supplied assistance for them and helped them uh, to, to, to accomplish what they needed to accomplish. What, what is uh, amazing about that is that 150 years earlier, b before this man was born, God, through his prophet Isaiah, had prophesied that a man would do this and even gave his name. Uh, look, if you will, at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, we're going to begin verse 28. There's some other things. Incidentally, it's kind of interesting here because in verse 24, in verse 24 of chapter 44, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. And so note the context. He's talking about here's what the Lord says. Look what he says, which, which I found interesting. Prior to verse 28, there are seven who's, W-H-O's, seven of them. And, and each of those seven, who did this, who did this, who did this, who did this. And then finally in verse 28, who, God, says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed and incidentally, notice that his anointed, 
God anointed this man to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gate will not be shut. I will go before you and make your crooked, make the crooked places straight. I will break into pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, that I, the Lord who called you by name, am the God of Israel. And so, long before this man is born, God is already naming who's going to help his people. Incidentally, it's kind of interesting because uh, there is some controversy about how much Cyrus understood of this. Uh, Some, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, actually worked for the Roman government, but he was a Jewish historian, he claimed that, that, uh, that Cyrus had read the prophecy of Isaiah. It was shown to him. We want you to see this. There are others who dispute that and say that Josephus was uh, imagining something that he thought would make the story more interesting. We, we really don't know. We do know that, that this tender-hearted deed was no accident. This wasn't an accident that Cyrus said, go home. God had engineered that. And incidentally, archaeology has found, and I don't want this to take away anything from what I've just said. I want it simply to enforce what I've said. Archaeology has found a piece that's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And, And on that stone cylinder... It is written, and they have deciphered all this, it is written that Cyrus did this for others too. Now, I don't know the order in which he did it. It may have been that he saw this was a great thing to do for the Jews and then did it for others. He may have done it for others and then did it for the Jews. I don't know. But it does say that Cyrus did this for people. I'll let you go back and I'll help you build your temples. I'll let you go back and worship your gods. I just don't think it was accidental. It couldn't be accidental because God had foretold it. Okay, in the other book, that is Nehemiah, God working is perhaps more subtle. There has been no naming of Artaxerxes by God and any prophet of God. And you have a man who was a cupbearer, a servant, who brought wine to the king. And usually, if, if this is correct, historians tell us that cupbearers were more than just a servant to bring wine. They tasted the wine before they gave it to the king because if it was poison, it would kill them and not the king. Pretty risky business. And, and so this, this trusted servant who brought wine to the king was given the privilege of going back home and, and helping to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, we'll get to it in just a minute. This, this would be strange to take a servant who had that skill and say, okay, you're concerned about your people. You go back and take care of this. 
You would not have expected that. Again, the hand of God. Okay, now this is not a theme found in the books, but it is a theme that has to be understood anyway, and that is there are changes that are taking place and have taken place in this time period. The captivity changed the Jews in several significant ways. One of them was that idolatry, which had been a plague to them for centuries, was no longer a major concern. Somehow or another, those hard-headed Jews got it into their heads that you don't worship idols. Now, the Babylonians had their gods. They were idolaters too. But the Jews did not accept that idolatry in Babylon. And when they came back home, they were not idolaters. Now, please be sure that you don't misunderstand. I am not saying that there was never a temptation for any Jew to become an idolater. That, that would be a little too extreme. In fact, we wonder, maybe you don't, I do, about a statement in the, at the end of 1 John. Ever wonder about this statement? The very last verse of 1 John 5, the end of the book, says, Little children, what? Keep yourselves from idols. Now, was he talking about Ganesh or <laughs> Indians or Bell or something else? I don't know. Maybe he was saying it the same way you and I would say it today. We don't, we're not afraid of people worshiping statues today, but we know that anything that displaces God is an idol. We, we've got some Americans who worship money. Some people worship property. They don't say I worship it, but they put it first, and it is their God whether they admit it or not. It could be that's what John is saying. We don't know. Now, the second thing that was significant was the, the synagogue began during this period of captivity. The Jews were away from home. They had no temple. In fact, they had no temple. They, they could not have been at the temple because it was all destroyed. But they didn't have a temple in Babylon. So what are they going to do? Well, they began to meet in little groups, local groups, called synagogues, and, and the synagogue became a local place of gathering for worship. You didn't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to, to, to observe things. You could observe them together as a group in your locality. I would say that's the forerunner of the congregation, wouldn't you, that we will see in the New Testament, the congregation, wherever you are. If you're in Corinth, you worship. In Athens, you worship. Wherever you are, that's your worship place. Now, even when the temple was rebuilt, the synagogue continued. They go back home, they rebuild the temple, but the synagogue is a very much a part of Jewish life, and it would be a part of Jewish life during the days of Jesus. Think how many times the gospel accounts show Jesus going to the synagogue, or Paul going to the synagogue, because that's where people were. The third important thing that happened were scribes, S-C-R-I-B-E-S, scribes came into prominence. These were men officially charged with copying the law. 
There were no printing presses, and so every document that had to be reproduced had to be copied by hand. And these scribes became experts at this. Um, to, at that, for that particular job, they were extremely devoted. Uh, you, you may have heard this before. Um, when a scribe was copying from the Bible, and he came, across, came to the name of Jehovah, he stopped, laid down his pen, and went and washed his hands, and came back before he would write God's name. So, so serious about how important this Bible was that, that they were very careful. As time passed, they were not just copyists, but because they were so familiar with what they copied, they became teachers. And so they not only understood because they copied, they taught. Unfortunately, <laughs> it went to their heads. And many of them in the time of Jesus were not just interested in copying and obeying God. They thought they knew it all. And, and, and they were among the Lord's earth. Woe to you, what? Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Again and again, Jesus would confront them. Now, many of the Jews did not return to their homeland. You shouldn't get the idea that these three returns meant that all the Jews came home. They didn't. And because they didn't, they began to go other places. This had started after the captivity of Assyria because Jews from the north never officially came back and started the northern kingdom again. Now, here's something that maybe we don't say much. Some of these northern kingdom Jews came to the south, and, and I won't bore you with the references, but there are biblical references that show that some of these Jews settled in Judah. Incidentally, why would that not be true if when Nehemiah goes back uh, to, to uh, uh, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he's confronted by what? Foreigners who don't belong there. They don't belong there. They're not Jews. But they're there. And, and so many of these people from other places begin to settle the territory. Um, Jews who were scattered out began to be known as the diaspora. That, that's the Greek term, diaspora. And, and what we get from that is the word dispersion, scattered out. And, and that's literally what the word means, scattered or dispersed. And so when you come to 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter writes to people who've been scattered that Jews who have gone and who have settled in other places, remember on the day of Pentecost, all of the Jews who were there and how many different places they came from, a multitude of different places that Jews were living and came to Jerusalem to worship. One final thing about that. The term Jew, J-E-W, seems to have replaced the word Hebrew. Abraham is called in the Old Testament the Hebrew, the one who crosses over. And now the term Jew is the common way to designate God's people. The northern kingdom wasn't anymore. Judah remained, and so Jew means one from Judah. 
a Jew was one from Judah. Now later it would cover all Jews, no matter where they were from. But you need to know that the transition was that God's people would no longer simply be called Hebrews, they would be called Jews. Let's talk a little bit about challenges. Everything that the returning Jews tried to accomplish meant resistance. And that interference at times caused real discouragement. Sometimes it created fear. Uh, sometimes it caused people to wonder whether they should keep trying. And prophets that we will study in later lessons like Haggai and Zechariah would have to stir up the people to get them to go back to doing what they should have been doing. And they would talk about them in continuing their word, being faithful. Nehemiah would have to do that same thing in essence. Let's, let us rebuild. Let us, let us rebuild these walls. And then the people would accept that idea. Now, Ezra, according to Ez, the book of Ezra, ran into marriage problems. And, and the marriage problems were caused and created by Jews marrying foreigner, heathens, uh, non-godly people immoral people, idolatrous people. There were problems of Jews intermarrying because God had said, don't do that. And Nehemiah would face some of that himself and even to see it involved in the priesthood. Now, the correction of those problems took time and effort and some patience because it can all be sorted out in one day. We have a lot of marriage problems in the church today, and sometimes people get a little bit impatient thinking they should be corrected immediately. You know, here's a problem, get over it. Doesn't always work that way. Sometimes there are things that have to be worked out and worked through, and that was the case here in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. Now, Nehemiah had his own great challenge. And that was that Jerusalem had become a pile of rubble. It, it was a pathetic thing when he saw it in his return. And, and, and he faced uh, hostility from those who didn't want the walls rebuilt. Uh, he faced uh, discouragement among his own people because they didn't all automatically believe that they could accomplish evidently what needed to be accomplished. They hadn't done it. And Nehemiah had to find a way to get people to buy into what they needed to do. And, and that's a real leadership goal. A real leader has to, buy, has to have people buy into what he's trying to get them to do. Here's what we see in both books. Challenges can be met if God's help is used and our best efforts are exerted. N nothing significant is accomplished if we don't lean on the Lord, if we don't trust him, if we don't put him as part of the plan, if he's not the major factor. But neither is anything accomplished if we just say, hey God, take care of this. People need to remember that today. There are a lot of people who say, hey God, take care of this. Don't involve me. But we have to be involved. We are God's hands. We are God's feet. We are God's workers. We have to 
use what we have. Well, let me give you a couple of quick other lessons. God keeps his promises. Isn't that wonderful? He promised his people. Yeah, I'm going to send you away into, into captivity. You're going to be punished. You have to be. Seventy years, you'll come back. He kept that promise. God can use a variety of people to accomplish his purposes. You know, it's interesting. The book of Ezra, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Ezra's ancestry is traced back to Aaron, the high priest. That means that Ezra was himself a priest. But the seventh, the sixth verse says that he was also a, an excellent scribe. He was one of those early copiers of the law. And so he had a duality of, of functions as a priest and as a scribe. And that must have surely given him special standing among his people. Now look at chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. And verse 10. One of the most beautiful verses in this book. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statues and ordinances in Israel. You can't talk about a more complete life than that, can you? Sought to, to do the will of God, prepared to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, not just to learn it. Some of the scribes learned but didn't do. He wanted to learn it and to do it and to teach it. Wonderful, wonderful idea. But at the same time, God used Nehemiah. And, and who would have expected that? Uh, he wanted to take on a job that really, from our perspective, and maybe from others, seemed really too big for him. Nehemiah had never been a construction superintendent. He'd been a cupbearer. That didn't qualify you to rebuild walls. But he wanted to do it, and God could use him. And here's how Nehemiah got it done. By appealing to personal interest. Hey, this is your part of the wall. You rebuild it. This is your part of the wall. You rebuild it. This is your part of the wall. You rebuild it. Isn't that a great way to work? He didn't say, hey, you who live over here, go over and rebuild this guy's wall. He didn't tell this guy, you'll go over here and build that guy's wall. He said, you rebuild your own wall. And they did. And did it successfully and in short time. How about Cyrus, that Persian ruler? Who would have expected him to help God's people? Yet he did. And then there's Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler, who allowed Nehemiah not only to go to Jerusalem, but make sure that he had provisions. Let me mention just a couple of things about why I like Nehemiah so much. I know all of us have favorite Bible characters, but I really like Nehemiah. He had a passion for his people. He loved his people. Now, you remember that when he heard that news, chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he heard that news about the state of Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. He's living in the palace. <laughs> He may be a servant, but he's still living in the palace. And things are not bad for Nehemiah, and they are bad for the people back at home. But he has a passion for them. He hurts because of their trouble. 
Some people have a passion for a lot of things, but not for their own people. Nehemiah was a person of prayer, chapter 1, verse 4. He prayed. Incidentally, one of the things I like about Nehemiah is prayers don't have to be long. Read Nehemiah's prayers. They're not long. They were short. (laughs) But he said what needed to be said. And he opened up his heart to God. And he prayed before trying to get things done. That's a very good idea for us. Before we do something, let's pray about it. He sought the proper resources and authority. He does that through the king. He he studied and assessed problems. He goes back to Jerusalem, and the first time he goes out, what does he do? Does Does he call a big meeting and say, hey, Let's all meet together and look at the wall. What does he do? Goes out by himself at night. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to know for himself what needed to be done before he started suggesting to others, here's what we ought to do. He looked at the situation and made sure that he understood the problem. Somebody has said, if you can't see a problem, you can't solve it, right? If you can't see the problem, if you don't fix on it, you can't solve it because you don't know what the problem is. He inspired and motivated his people, and he really did that. He delegated. Oh, what a great, important lesson. He he didn't try to accomplish everything. He said, I'm going to rebuild this wall by myself. No, he, he knew that he had to have help, and he delegated that help. You know, after the wall was built, Nehemiah went back to the king. I don't know if you remember that. I went back to Babylon. But he delegated authority to his brother to take care of things while he was gone. Nehemiah always had the big picture in view. That is, he saw what had to be accomplished and what was going to happen if it were. He dealt decisively with those who would hinder his cause. You see, Nehemiah wasn't afraid to stand up to those who said, you can't do this. And I don't mean they just said, you're not able to do it. They said, you can't do it. He wasn't afraid of them. He, he even in chapter 5, verse 7, rebuked the nobles of Jerusalem and told them, you're wrong in what you're doing. He put spiritual things ahead of popular mundane things. See that in chapter 13. He said in chapter 13, shut the gates. Nobody's going to work on the Sabbath. We're going to, we're going to take care of that problem. We're going to shut the gates. And if you come and you try to peddle your wares on the Sabbath, you're going to be sorry for it. We're not going to let you do it. He was a man of vigilance. He was careful about his own ethical example. In chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, he talks about earlier how he had fed so many people at his table, and he said, I never took anything from from them. I never took a penny. And he gave little attention to they say. See, there were critics who said, here's here's what they're saying. I don't care what they're saying. Decisive in action, he was a planner, and he was a man with a generous spirit. Okay, thanks for being here. I appreciate you uh, coming and sharing our time together.